Well, let's go ahead and uh, we're going to turn to the book of Hosea again this morning. Hosea is in the Old Testament, so if you find uh, the book of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, and then you'll come to the book of Hosea. And uh, it's a rather interesting book because it's a, it's a warning, it's a judgment against Israel. And uh, it is in that warning that God is expressing his love for his people. He's trying to get across to them a message that they need to repent from their sins and uh, turn back to him. And this was just one of many messages that the Lord had uh, for his people. I mean, you have to remember that God's message, the prophets that he sent, spanned for such a long time. I mean, this is just one of the many messages that he gave towards his people. And uh, Hosea was kind of the last prophet before uh, destruction fell upon Israel in 722 B.C. And this message that Hosea gives is rather startling, and it's got some really strong language to it, and it's some things that we don't necessarily expect to hear uh, from a prophet or necessarily what, what God may say. Um, so if you missed last week, we're studying this book, and uh, last week we looked at how God told Hosea to go and basically marry a whore, and this, this uh, relationship that God told Hosea to do was basically showing a picture of the relationship that God says that I have with you. Um, you are like Gomer. You're like the whore that goes out and uh, runs after other men, other gods. And uh, God says, you know, I have this love towards you and you are being unfaithful to me. So this week in Hosea, we'll see how God uh, is our faithful husband and uh, how God has always been faithful. He's always been there for us. He's always uh, willing to stick by our side no matter what. Uh, unlike the unfaithful wife who is always running around and, and seeking after uh, other men, other gods. And you know, one of the ways that God uses his word in our life is he uses his word as a, as a mirror. As a, as, a, as a thing that reflects exactly who we are inside. And as when we look in God's word, it shows us who we are on the inside. Like I can look out here and I can see people with uh, nice hair, nice clothes, um, you know, you, you look nice, but yet really inside God may see a different picture. And God sees us for who we really are on the inside. And so one of the issues that God is relentlessly after is our hearts. In Jeremiah chapter 17, 9, it says, The human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. No one really knows how bad it is. The verse after that, God says, I am the one that tries the hearts. I am the one that can see how wicked your heart really is. And so God is always pursuing after our heart because he knows that the heart is the main issue. He knows that that is exactly how we begin to 
lead ourselves astray from following after Christ. And God is after our heart. So only God knows how deceitful and desperate our hearts are. So what rules in your heart is of primary importance to God. Why? Because whatever rules in your heart, whatever rules in my heart, the Lord knows that is what I love the most. Jesus himself told us this by saying, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what is the treasure of your heart? What is the treasure of my heart? What are you pursuing after? What am I pursuing after? What am I living for? What is given my most time and, and the most priority in my life? Whatever that is, that is what is ruling inside my heart. So there should only be one person who should rightly fulfill that position in our heart. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only one that should have rightful rule in our hearts. Jesus is the only one that should be our Lord and our lover. He should be the only one that stands as the highest Lord and greatest love in our hearts. And so God is always pursuing after our heart. But unfortunately, all of us, myself included, are tempted to give our hearts to other things. Jesus made it very clear that we cannot have him and other things ruling in our life because he said we will either love one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon at the same time. Jesus says you'll either cling to one and hate the other. So we have to have Jesus, the primary person, the most important thing that needs to be ruling in our hearts. We were made to have Jesus as our Lord and our greatest lover because he is the only one who can satisfy the deepest desires in our hearts. We may run after other things, but those things will never fulfill like Jesus fulfills. We may pursue after other things, but only Jesus can fully satisfy what is missing in our life. So all of us here, we must remember that our hearts are of primary importance to the Lord, and that is what the Lord pursues after. Everything that Jesus wants for us and desires for us can only be rightly satisfied in having him as the center of our lives. And that's it. There's nothing else. So what is right for us and best for us, we only find it in Jesus. So that's what kind of the premise of this, of this chapter in Hosea chapter number 2 has to deal with, is who is the primary person in, in Israel's life. And we'll see here in the language that God uses to describe and how he gives us example after example of how Israel was pursuing after other things and not after the Lord and how God is the faithful hus husband and Israel was the unfaithful wife and pursuing after other men or other gods. So when we look at our relationship with God as a marriage, it brings out some very important characteristics of God. This is very prevalent as we study here in the book of Hosea, as we looked at last week, as, you know, that's how we should view our relationship with the Lord as a marriage relationship. Not necessarily that God is just up there and he's just kind of twiddling his thumbs and he really doesn't know what's going on because he should be intimately involved in our lives and we should allow him to be intimately involved in our lives. So here God is trying to get a message across to Israel about their unfaithfulness that they have towards him.
If you remember, God told Hosea to get married. But he told Hosea, and he says, you go out and you find the loosest woman that you possibly can find. You go find the woman that's out there that's just with every man. And Hosea says, okay, I'll do it. So he goes and he scours the streets. He goes around in the villages and he finds the loosest woman that he possibly can, knowing that she will be unfaithful to him, and he marries her. God, as the faithful husband, loves fully and perfectly, and he has never done anything wrong. But we, as people, we always seem to run astray. We always seem to run after other things and not have the Lord the primary person in our life. We as the people are guilty of great wrongs against the Lord. But God has never done us wrong. But we always continue to do him wrong. So God here tries to bring Hosea into the message, into the picture, and to show them how unfaithful they are towards him. So let's look now here at our text, Hosea chapter number 2, and let's see at this passage how the Lord is using this in Israel's life. Hosea chapter number 2, and look what the Bible says here about this, beginning in verse number 1. He says here, say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. And notice the language that, that God uses here. He says, plead with your mother. Plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. That she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. Lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness, and make her like a parched land, and kill her with thirst upon her children also. I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread, my water, my wool, and my flax, my oil, and my drink. So this is the husband's complaint that he has towards his wife. It's almost as you can, you can imagine, it's, it's almost like as if the husband is sitting down with the wife at the kitchen table and saying, Honey, listen, I love you. But look what you've been doing. Look, look, look at this. This is my complaint that I have towards you. We're trying to have an intervention here. I'm trying to show you how unfaithful you are towards me. And what does the wife do? She says, you know what? I'm going to go after my lovers. It's almost as if the wife gets up from the table and says, I don't care what you say. I'm going to go after my lovers because they're the ones that are providing me with drink and with my wool and my flax and my oil and my drink. And so notice in this complaint, God is saying, you have been unfaithful to me by doing what? Committing adultery. And in the context, it is running after other lovers or other gods. You'll notice in the passage there that the Lord doesn't just mention Baal. He, mentioned, he mentions Baals, other gods, many Baals. And so this is spiritual adultery. The wife and the mother refers to the people of Israel and the children refer to individual Israelites. So in this passage, God is bringing his complaint against his people. And he's saying, you are to blame, Israel. You have been running after these other gods. You are pursuing after them. And I love you. I've been faithful to you. What have I done? Please show me what I have done. And yet God has done nothing. He's been faithful the entire time. And so he is very upset, and he is, he is pleading with them. 
He says, plead with your mother. Plead, for she is not my wife. And so he's pleading with them to turn away from their wicked ways. Now, please understand that what we do as individuals, what we follow, what we love, what rules in our hearts matters to God. God is just not sitting up there somewhere unconcerned about what rules in our lives because he is very concerned because he knows the things that we allow, the things that we pursue in our life and in our heart, that those are the things that control our lives. And God says, I love you. Do not pursue after these other things. Now, God doesn't say it's wrong to have things, but it's wrong when those things take primary importance in our life after the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have to make sure that we are pursuing fully after the Lord. God cares deeply and passionately about what you and I do with our life and what we allow to rule in our heart. So the root issue here in this passage is your heart, my heart. Look at verse number two again and notice what he says here. God is making it very clear that the people have turned away to put away And he says, I want you to put away your idols, their other lovers. Look what he says. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. Notice the language there. Where is God getting at the issue? He says, what is between the breasts? The heart. He's saying, Israel, you have been pursuing after these other lovers, after other gods in the heart. He's saying, I want you to get that through your head. He's saying, do not do this. Put it away. I mean, Hosea probably could have went in in every town and found every lover and, and probably went in there and like, you know, kicked butt and beat them up. But that still would have not changed the issue because the issue was at the heart. You know, it's so sad that sometimes we think, oh, you know, I'll just get rid of these things and this and that and this and that. But that's not the issue. God says you've got to change your heart. Your heart attitude has what has to change. And so he's saying, put it away from between her breast. Put it away from the heart. That's the problem. It's the heart. That's the root. That's the problem that God is trying to get at. You know, the same can be said of us, our root problem. You know, we may sin in many different ways. Israel was not just guilty of of sinning by worshiping one false god, but by many false gods. So the problem is not just what we do, but the root problem of us is our heart, what we love, what rules our heart, and what our heart loves. This is why God is pleading, passionately pursuing after his wife, Israel and saying, please, please, I beg of you. I mean, can you imagine the picture? Husband and wife sitting at the table and he's pleading and he's saying, please, 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 I'm begging you, put it away from your heart. Change your heart attitude. So when God describes his relationship with us as a marriage, he gets to the very core issue and that's our heart. Let me give you a good illustration of this. The marriage between Jamie and I, uh, we stood on a 
platform somewhat similar like this at a, in a church building. And we turned and we faced each other. We held hands. And we repeated certain words back and forth. And, you know, I said, I, Michael Bird, you know, do this, promise to do this, promise to do that, promise to do this. And I was pledging my love towards my, my wife, my bride. And I'm saying, I will be the only one for you. And likewise, she turned and she was facing me and she said the same things. And she said, I am pledging my life, my love towards you. You will be the only one. So marriage is an exclusive relationship. If I were to go home and say, hey, James, I just want to tell you something. My girlfriend's coming over. What do you think what would happen? Not good. Because my wife is not content to be just one of many. She says, there's only one. It's an exclusive relationship. And likewise, I would not be content if, if my wife said, hey, honey, uh, my other husband's going to be coming over to fix the car. What you, I'm going to fix the car. And so I would be upset so there has to be exclusivity there between the husband and the wife. There's only one. Can I tell you that Jesus himself wants an exclusive relationship with us? He's not content of being just one of many. He wants to be the only one. And he says, I want to be your exclusive lover. I want to be the exclusive Lord of your life. I want to be the only one that is passionately pursuing after you. So that is what marriage is in its exclusive relationship. And here in Hosea, Hosea, God is using Hosea's marriage as a picture to show that there has not been an exclusive relationship that Gomer, just as God used Gomer and, and said, you're going to run after these other men, that's exactly what Israel has been doing, running after other gods. So if God did not love us, he wouldn't demand that we would be exclusively his. God cannot be loving and indifferent to our sin. The most loving thing that God could ever do is to call us away from the things that, are, that we are pursuing after with our hearts because he wants to love us intimately and passionately in our own lives. So here is the heart of the matter. Am I exclusively, wholeheartedly devoted to Jesus? Does he have the unique position in my life? Can he rightly be described as my faithful husband or is he just a mere acquaintance? God is passionately pursuing after your heart and my heart. Is he passionately after you? Now let's keep noticing here some other things about this text because I want to pull some of these things out that I think give us a really good picture of their heart and what God is going to do in all of this. Look at verse number five again. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool, my flax, my oil, and my drink. So I wanted to separate this verse out because I think it shows us the passionate pursuit that Israel has towards her other lovers. The other lovers here are the false gods that Israel had. They picked up these false gods because of the surrounding regions which they lived. And so it wasn't just one God, it was many gods, Baal. 
In fact, you find that they had a God for nature. They had a God for life. They had a God for death. They had a God that would bless their crops. They had a God for this. They had a God for that. And so anything that happened, if they went out and their crops grew, they'd say, oh, thank you, God. Not the God, but God of whatever. And so they would ascribe all of this greatness, all of these things that were happening in their life. Maybe they had a bumper crop that year of, of wool. And they say, oh, thank you, God of wool. And so they were ascribing all of this greatness to these other gods. I remember on a, uh, Jamie and I, we went on a trip to uh, Cancun. And we went to uh, a place off of Cancun. It was called the Island of Women. Now, don't get your eyes. <laughs> but anyways, we went there. It was just, we just kind of uh, milled around there. You drove a golf cart around on the island. And we went to the, um, the farthest place that you could be in uh, Mexico there. And it was called the Cliff of the Dawn. And supposedly, this was an area where they worshipped false gods. And they had replicated this god. It was the god of fertility. And they had this giant uh, wooden sculpted god out there of the god of fertility. I often kid my wife that the reason why when we went to Cancun, we saw the god of fertility, and then Jamie ended up pregnant. But that's not, <laughs> that's not the reason why. <laughs> but the idea is the fact that they ascribed all of this greatness to these different gods. And so here, Israel is saying, my lovers are the ones, that's the reason why I'm prospering is because of my lovers. They gave me my drink, my food, my flax, my bread, my oil, my drink, my water. And he says, I will go after these other gods. So here in this passage, notice what, what Baal, this false lover, was given credit for. When they had bread and water, Baal got all the credit. When they had wool and flax to make their clothes, Baal got the credit. When they had drink and oil, Baal got the credit. So when they were blessed, Baal got the credit, not God. But Baal had nothing to do with it. Baal was a false god. They couldn't hear, he couldn't hear them. I mean, they'd go over there and pray to this wooden or, or bronze statue and nothing would happen. He had eyes he couldn't see. He had ears he couldn't hear. And God says, Baal has nothing to do with it. Can you imagine the picture again? Here's a husband and wife. They're sitting down at the table. And the wife may have on a, uh, a nice uh, coat. And the, the husband says, I gave you that coat. But yet, the wife is so deceived in her, in her thinking, she thinks, my lover gave me this coat. And can you imagine the heartbreak that that, that must have been for the, for the husband to, to hear that and say, no, honey, you're, you're mistaken. They did not give you that. I gave you that. Well, uh, these, uh, my lovers, they gave me this house. No, honey, I have been providing for you so you could have a house. And so you can see how God is so passionately disturbed by this that he's saying, what are, you, what are you thinking here? You're running after these other gods. You're not thinking correctly. You're thinking that they are giving you all of this stuff. Baal had nothing to do with it. Now you think, Mike, surely, come on. We don't worship some antiquated, superstitious, Baal cultish worship today. Maybe not. But who do you ascribe your blessings 
when they come into your life too. When you receive certain things in your life, where does the glory go to? Is it, well, you know, I worked really hard and so I was able to get that. Or is it, hey, you know, I, I really made it through. I pulled myself up by the bootstraps and I got it done. Where does our greatness go to? If we're not careful, we can start ascribing that to other lovers in our life. Jesus says, I am the only one that provides for you. Listen to what James chapter 1, verse 17 says. Every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights. Every blessing, every bite of food, every drink of water that we drink, God reigns over all and he is the one that gives us everything. All of the blessings that we receive come from his hand. It's nothing that we do. It's nothing that we can do ourselves. God gives us all of that. Let's look here at another verse that shows the faithful husband's complaint that he brings against his unfaithful wife. Notice what he says here. Verse number 8 says, And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. I mean, can you imagine the picture, how horrible this is? Husband and wife sitting at the kitchen table. He's upset. He's saying, you've been doing this. This is my complaint. And she's got all of this stuff, and she's been taking it over to her lovers. I mean, can you imagine how, how heartbreaking that must have been? He has, this, he has this passionate love for his wife who's been unfaithful. And he's saying, Honey, I'm the one that gave you all of this stuff, and you're using it for Baal worship. That's terrible. So not only were the people committing spiritual adultery against God, they were using the gifts that he gave them for their own, for their other lover. But even though they did that, God is still going after his people. He's not giving up. He's saying, I don't care about all this. He says, I'm still going to passionately pursue after you. So remember that God is passionately pursuing after me, after you, and he's never going to give up. He has a plan. He has a playbook of which he's going to pursue after his lover with. He knows exactly how to overtake her. He's got it all figured out. Look at these verses here because this is how he does it. In verse number 6, in verse number 9, and verse number 14, God has a threefold plan of how he's going to bring back his wife towards him. It's found with one word, therefore. God says, you've been doing all of this, therefore I'm going to do this, and I'm going to win you back. Let's look at these things in, in detail here. Verse, verse 1. How does God do it? He builds hedges and walls. Verses 6 and 7. God says this, Therefore I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her path. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me than now. God is putting up barriers, he's putting up hedges and walls. Why? He's trying to fence her in. He's trying to keep her. He's trying to say, listen, you're going to try to pursue after other lovers, but I'm not going to allow that to happen. I'm going to put up thorns, I'm going to put up hedges, 
you won't be able to get out. So God is breaking down her pursuits after her other lovers. He's frustrating her past until she finally says, nothing is working. I tried to pursue, but keep getting overtaken. I keep seeking, but I can't find. I will go and return to my first husband because none of this is working. And it was better for me back with my first husband than it was ever before. And you know, that's exactly what God does in our own lives. He brings up hedges and he builds walls. He frustrates us. And so when we are running after other things with the pursuit of our heart, God sometimes builds up walls and hedges because he wants us to see that this is not working. And he wants us to turn back to him and follow after him because he knows that that pursuit that we're running after is not going to work. So God lovingly hedges up our ways. He lovingly builds walls against us because he wants us to follow after him. So God causes discontentment in our lives. It could be a job situation. It could be a family situation. It could have been that one thing that just happened at that right time. God allowed that to happen because he knows that maybe the pursuit that you're on is not going to work. And it's a loving act that he does towards us. And what does he want us to do? He wants us to return to him, to repent. We'll see here in the close of our text of verses of how, how amazing this love that he has towards his people. So that's the first one. He builds hedges and walls towards our lives. Secondly, look at this. He disciplines us. During this time, the people were experiencing great abundance of wealth and, and growth and, and prosperity. I mean, financially, things were going well in their country. But God is going to take all of that away in their lives. Through the verses here, from verses 9 through 13, we see that the problem that we have is forgetting God. We run after other things in the pursuit of our heart, and we end up forgetting the Lord, our first love. You know, all of us are guilty of this, myself included. We all tend to run after other things and forget God in the whole of it. But yet God will not allow us to stay that way. He doesn't want us to, to be running after other things with our heart because he's trying to bring us back to him. And so he does this by disciplining us. Now, I didn't mean, I didn't say that he beats us. He disciplines us. For whom the Lord loves, he does what? He corrects, he chastens us. And so for us to be corrected by the Lord, he loves us. And he's trying to bring discipline into our lives. Notice what he does in this way. Look what he says here in verse 9 through 10. Therefore, I will take back my grain. In its time, and I will, and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hands. God tells us that what He will take away grain, wine, He says, wool, flax. He says, I'm going to take all of this stuff back. Because it doesn't belong to you. It belongs to me, God says. And I love what he says here. He says, I'm going to do it in the sight of her lovers. Can you imagine the picture? Here's the husband. He says, all right, honey, you think you own all this stuff? 
whatever. And then all of a sudden, kicks down the door, starts taking stuff back. He says, I'm going to uncover your lewdness right in front of your lovers, right in front of your bales. He says, I'm taking it all back. It belongs to me. I'm going to bring discipline in your life. And Israel is saying, Baal gave me everything. It provides me with everything. God says, nope. He says, it's all mine, and I'm taking it back. I'm taking away everything, and Baal can't do one thing about it. I love the last part of verse number 10. Notice what it says. No one shall rescue her out of my hand, or no one shall tear her from my grasp. This is a loving statement that God has towards his children. Remember, God is passionately pursuing after his bride. God will not allow anyone to take away his people from him. It's an exclusive relationship. He is going to fight hard to make sure that he maintains that. And he says, I got you. Nobody's taking you away from me. She's trying to run. He's saying, I got you. No one's going to take you away from me. God is firmly committed to his people. He will not let them go. You know, Jesus said something very similar to this in John chapter uh, 10, verses 27 through 29. Let's take a look at what Jesus has to say about an exclusive relationship that he has with us. In John chapter number 10, in verse number 27 through 29, Jesus said this. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Our hope is in God's firm commitment to us. If you put your faith in Jesus, the scriptures here tell us that he will never let you go. Why? Because he is a loving husband towards us. And he's passionately pursuing after our lives. He passionately pursues after his bride. Let's keep looking at what discipline God will do to bring back his people. So he tells them, I'm going to take everything back. He disciplines us by taking everything back. But notice what he says here. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feast, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay to waste her vines and her fig trees of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest and the beast of the field shall devour them. God continues with what he'll take away, mirth, amusement, or laughter. He says he's going to take away her feast and her celebrations and her Sabbaths. He's going to lay all of that to waste. I'm taking it all away, he says. He does this because his unfaithful wife says that all of this her lovers gave to her. They didn't understand where they came from. The people thought that all of their material blessings came from their idols. So God takes them away so that they see that their idols can't give them anything. He says, I'm taking it all back. I'm bringing it all back to me. He says, I'm disciplining you, Israel, so that you can see my love towards you. Look, how, look what else God will do. Look what it says here in verse number 13. And I will punish or discipline her for the feast days of the Baals, 
when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. So he says, I will punish and discipline her because of the worship of not just Baal, but Baals, more than one, many lovers. See the picture? She's getting ready to go out and meet her lovers. What is she doing? She's putting on her ring and jewelry. They're sitting at the kitchen table. And God says, I gave you everything. I'm going to take it back. And she says, I don't care. I'm putting on my jewelry. And she's going to go out and meet her lovers. And God says, you have forgotten me. You have forgotten my love that I have towards you. I need to bring discipline in your life. And how true that is in our own lives. God says, I love you. I've given you all of these blessings in your life. And we're, we're over there. We're getting our coat on. We're, we're putting our jewelry on. We're putting on our best face. And we're like, hey, I got other plans, God. I got other things I want to do with my life. And it doesn't include you. And we start pursuing after other things. And God says, oh, my heart is breaking towards you because I love you so much. And so I have to bring some discipline in your life. I have to start hedging up your ways and building walls so you, can't, you cannot pursue after those things because I want it to be an exclusive relationship with you. And he says, I'm going to start taking back everything that I have given you. The husband says, I will discipline her. God uses discipline to bring us back to him. What a loving action that he has towards us. You know, I think uh, now that I'm a, a parent, you know, Evelyn, she wants to do things that are bad. She's a bad kid. I'm thinking, what happened to you? You have a devil inside of you. We have to lovingly correct her and discipline her because she does not realize that the path that she's on and the, the, the way that she's headed is headed towards destruction. And we're trying to lovingly correct her and bring her back in the right way. And God says, I'm going to punish you. I'm going to bring discipline in your life. Repent. Return back to your first love. That's what God wants us to do. Oh, how he loves us. He loves us enough to correct us and discipline us. Lovingly, he does this. He's not going to let us go. So God's plan to get us to turn back to him is to build walls and hedges and to discipline us. But the last thing he does, this is what just blows our minds away. I mean, this by far is the best thing that God does as he pursues after us. Notice here, lastly, look what he does. He allures us. In Hosea chapter 2, verses 14 through 15, it says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards, make the valley of Acre a door of hope, and there she shall answer as in the days of her youth as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. This is not what we would expect. Remember how this passage describes God's relationship with his people? God is the faithful, loving husband, but the people forgot him and turned to other idols. But what does God end up doing? He allures them back to himself. 
and he allures us back to himself. Rather than loving God, the people here, rather than loving God after they had ran after other idols, God doesn't sit there and say, okay, that's it, I'm through. He doesn't say after affair, after affair, after affair. He doesn't say, that's it, no more. He allures them back to himself. What would, he, what would we expect God to do? We would expect him to stop, to quit, to stop pursuing after his wife. But he doesn't do that. He allures her back. He captures her eye again. He becomes powerfully and mistrefully attractive. He speaks tenderly to her is what the scripture says. He takes her back to the first date in the wilderness. Hey, babe, remember this? Remember here in the wilderness when you had nothing? Remember it was me that led you by the, by the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of, of fire by night? Remember you were asking for food and I gave you manna from heaven? Remember that? Remember how great that was when you were thirsty? And I said, hey, just go over to that rock and you get some water. Remember how great that was? Remember that first date, babe? Come on, come on, let's go back. Let's go sit back at our old table. Let's try to rekindle the fire of love again. God is trying to allure her back. He takes her back he, where he showed them that he provided, he led, he guided, and he loved them. He's trying to rekindle a love spark between the two. He wants to be their God and so that they can be their people. This is the amazing love that God has for us. You know, as I was thinking about this, um, we've been unpacking some stuff there at the house, and I haven't seen this in a while. But when Jamie and I were first dating, man, I was doing everything I could possibly could to win her heart, man. Buying her flowers, getting her candy, spending the time, man. And then once I got her, it was like, victory is won. I don't need to do anything anymore. <laughs> and I came across this. This is what I used to propose with, okay? Um, when we were dating and stuff, I would often give her things. And so we decided to go on a date one time. And uh, I had this thing all made up of how I was going to propose to her. So I went to the, um, the store and I found this book. It was at a used bookstore and it was called The Oxford Book of Marriage. So I put this little paper cover on it and wrote this nice little lovely mushy love letter on here and uh, had it all planned out. And I was like, oh man, this would be a great idea. Oxford Book of Marriage. So I glued all the pages together except for a few of them. And then I cut out this hole, and I put the ring in there, right? So I got all this stuff put together. I mean, my friends are laughing at me at, at the college dorm. They're like, what are you doing, Martha Stewart Arts and Crafts, you know? And I'm like, dude, I'm getting a wife, man. Look what I'm doing. What was I doing, man? I was alluring her. I was trying to win her heart. So I get all this stuff, put it together, propose to her, get married. And now we're almost going to be coming up on 10 years of marriage. And I think to myself, have I been alluring her in my marriage life? So easy for me just to kind of get comfortable and, you know, we start yelling at each other and all this kind of stuff. And, 
but my wife still wants to be exclusively mine. I still want her to be exclusively mine. I have to allure her. I have to work at it. God here, he says, I'm going to allure you. I'm going to bring some, some things into your life to discipline you and hedge up your ways because I'm trying to bring you back. I'm trying to rekindle that spark, the love interest that I want you to have towards me. You see, God never, God never takes our arm and forces us to love him. He lovingly may hedge up our way. He lovingly may build up walls. He lovingly disciplines us. And he lovingly tries to win our hearts back to him. It's a choice that we all have to make. It's a choice that we have to decide and say, God, I want you to be number one priority in my life. Jesus, I want you to be the Lord and the lover of my life. I want you to be the faithful king in my heart. I want you to be the primary one in my life that I'm going to pursue after. That's what God wants from our heart. So this is an amazing love that he has for us. Even when we sin against him again and again, time after time after time and after time, God says, Woohoo! He says, Hey, do you remember what it was like back in the wilderness? Remember, it was the one that I was the one that loved you. I was the one that went after you that nobody else would go after, and I pursued after you because I love you. Notice a few things what he says here. He says, I will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. If you read in the Old Testament, the Valley of Achor goes all the way back to the book of Joshua when Achan sinned and, and they had great defeat that day because Achan decided to, to steal a Babylonian garment and some money and he hid it in his tent. And God said, I didn't want you to take anything from that city because everything was accursed. And they found it under his tent. The Bible says that they brought all of his family out, every single member of his family, they brought them all out, stoned them with stones, and burned their bodies with fire, and laid a giant heap of rubble around them. And he says, this, this will be known as the Valley of Achor, the, the Valley of Trouble. And God says, I'm going to take all those troublesome times in your life, and I'm going to take them and make them into a door of hope. I think about that in my own life, how much trouble I've had in my own life because I've decided to pursue after other things in my heart without pursuing after Jesus Christ. And it's brought trouble in my life. And God says, I'm willing to take all of that trouble and turn it into a valley of hope, into a door of hope, he says. I'm willing to take the disappointments, all the problems in your life, all the despair, and turn it into joy and turn it into hope. He says that he will restore them like when they first came out of Egypt Obviously, we didn't come out of Egypt per se. And God says, do you remember what it was like when you came out of Egypt? How you, how you pursued after me and you followed after me? You know, we look forward to the new heavens and the new earth one of these days when we will sit with Jesus Christ. We will be in his presence. We will worship him forever and ever and ever. We look forward to the time when we will stand in his presence, clothed with his righteousness, and we'll be able to worship him. So God is alluring us. He's after us. He's pursuing after us. Are we pursuing after him? Let's pray.
Lord, we thank you so much for this time we got to look into your word. And Lord, help us as, as children. Help us to follow after you. God, I do pray if there's anybody here today that has never put their faith and trust in, in you, They've never received the forgiveness of sins. God, I pray that they turn to you. Lord, for us that are your children, help us to maintain the exclusive marriage relationship that we're supposed to have between us and you. God, help us to search our hearts deeply and see if there's any, any other lovers in our heart that we're giving our time to or giving our are focused primarily on and not on you. God, we thank you so much for loving us, for hedging up our ways, for, for disciplining us, and for just calling us back to you. Thank you for pursuing after us. God, we don't initiate this. You do. Thank you for that. Thank you so much for your love for your people. Help us to love you. We ask all this in your name. Amen.